and welcome to South Sudan in Focus on the Voice of America. I'm Nabil Biagio in Washington on this live broadcast from Studio 14. Here are some of the top stories we're covering today, this Thursday, January 18, 2024. IGAD leaders are meeting in Uganda to discuss the conflict in Sudan and recent tensions between Ethiopia and Somalia. And CARE International says events in Africa are being underreported in the media. I think that big crises, big conflicts such as the war in Ukraine or now in the Middle East are receiving the most coverage by international journalists in every country or most of the countries. And therefore, uh, smaller uh, crises are more in the shadow of these big conflicts. We will have these stories and more coming up on South Sudan in Focus. We first begin bring you the latest in Sudan and the region where the 42nd Extraordinary Summit of the Intergovernmental Authority on Development of IGAD began in Uganda today with three out of eight regional bloc members notably absent. South Sudan's President Salva Kiir Mayardid, along with Presidents of URM of Along with Presidents Yuari Museveni of Uganda, William Ruto of Kenya, Hassan Sheikh Mahmoud of Somalia, and IGAD Chairman Ismail Omar Ghali of Djibouti are attending. The summit was convened to address recent tensions between Ethiopia and Somalia, triggered by Ethiopia's Memorandum of Understanding with Somaliland, a breakaway region of Somalia that Makadishu considers an integral part of its territory. Additionally, discussions will include Sudan's nine-month conflict between the Sudan Armed Forces, or SAF, and Paramilitary Rapid Support Forces, or RSF. Prime Minister Abiy Ahmed of Ethiopia and Sudan's Transitional Sovereignty Council Chairman Abdul Fattah al-Burhan are notably absent. Ethiopia cited prior engagements overlapping with the, with the summit timing, while Al-Burhan's absence is in response to IGAD's invitation to RSF commander Mohammed Hamdan Dagolo. Eritrea's president, Isaiah Safwarki, also is not attending. We, bring, we will bring you further updates on the IGAD summit and its outcomes. A new report, CARE International, says... Events in Africa are being underreported in the media as global attention shifts to conflicts in Europe and the Middle East. The charity identifies 10 African nations confronting humanitarian challenges from hunger, violence and climate change, but getting little news coverage. Mohammed Youssef reports. The report released last week took the unusual approach of aggregating online articles in Arabic, English, French, German and Spanish. It found there were more than 215,000 articles last year about Prince Harry's book Spare, but only 11,000 about the deadly violence and displacement in Burkina Faso. There were more than 273,000 articles about the Barbie film but only 1,000 about the floods, drought and hunger in Angola that affected some 7 million people. The report, titled Breaking the Silence, mentions many other African crises that are getting little to no media attention. Stefan Brand works with Care Germany. He explains why the continent's humanitarian crisis is underreported. I think that big crises, big conflicts such as the war in Ukraine or now in the Middle East, are receiving the most coverage by international journalists in every country or most of the countries. And therefore, um, yeah, 
uh, smaller uh, crises are more in the shadow of these big conflicts. Um, but I also think that um, media channels are mainly forced to save money because of the lack of interest by public. Care International's research singled out 10 African countries, including Zimbabwe, Uganda, Burundi, Zambia and Senegal, that are suffering crises such as climate change, conflict, poverty, widespread hunger and political instability. It said more than 77,000 articles were published last year about these countries, while the iPhone 15 generated more than 273,000 stories. Douglas Okwach is the secretary of the Foreign Press Association Africa, an organization of African journalists working for foreign media. He says media budgets have been shrinking, reducing the number of stories being produced from the continent. I think uh, post-COVID countries uh, globally really are constrained in terms of resources, you know, um, and then therefore many countries, particularly the ones that own this big international media, are looking at where to cut, you know, budgets, and, 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 and probably the media is one of the places of the easiest uh, places to cut budgets. And when you cut budgets, then that has a direct implication on, 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 on coverage. International media's closure of foreign bureaus also is blamed for the under-reporting and fatigue that has set in after decades of unending conflicts and humanitarian crisis in some African countries. Some critics have accused foreign media of focusing more on Africa's conflict and suffering than its potential and contribution to the world. Okwach, who is also a journalist, says other sectors and global competition for Africa's resources and support are getting more coverage than the humanitarian crisis. We cannot just focus uh, on, on the humanitarian, the, the, the fewer, the lesser humanitarian stories and think that things in Africa are on a downward spiral um, in terms of focus on Africa. I think if there's less coverage on humanitarian crisis, probably the coverage has also shifted towards uh, economic interests and geopolitical interests. Brand says access to African countries and investment in stable media can improve coverage in Africa. I think in general, um, governments need to give journalists access to the countries uh, and especially the crisis of the region so reporters and journalists can report on these crises. Um, Foreign media needs to pay more attention um, except more pictures from African journalists, freelancers um, from from countries, foreign countries, African countries, and media uh, needs to invest in a good, stable uh, journalism, foreign correspondents, freelancers, and local partners. The United Nations says more than 300 million people will need humanitarian assistance in 2024, but half of them in Africa. Care International calls for the media to tell African humanitarian crisis stories so aid agencies and relevant authorities can take urgent action to save the situation. Mohamed Yusuf, VOA News, Nairobi. Russia is preparing to launch a new military force in Africa, dubbed the Africa Legion, which will replace the controversial Wagner group of mercenaries, according to a report by the Russian newspaper Vidomosti. Sources close to the Russian Minister of Defense said that the African Legion will be activated in the summer of 2024 and will operate in five African countries, Burkina Faso, Libya, Mali, the Central African Republic and Niger. VOA senior analyst Mohamed Shinawi discussed this development with David Deroch, associate professor at the National Defense University. 
Well, this is basically an effort to get the benefits of the Wagner Group without the drawbacks. So the Wagner Group initially operated sort of below the table. The Russian government denied that it was part of Russia. They said, oh, no, this is just an independent group. But of course, you saw the problems with that independence when the Wagner Group broke with the Russian MOD. So in spite of the fact that the Wagner Group was not too effective in Ukraine, it was a lucrative and uh, militarily effective force in most of Africa. So Russia doesn't want to give that capability up. So they're trying to reconstitute it in a way that's easier to control. The sources said the African Legion will be directly subordinate to the Ministry of Defense. Russia created the African Legion to replace the Wagner Group, which faced, as you said, legal and political challenges for its activities in Africa. Would that change give some legitimacy to Russian military presence in Africa? I don't think so. So I think that what this is trying to do is to recruit a high level of person, soldier, potential soldier to conduct operations in Africa. The challenge here is going to be that we've seen, you know, the Russian manpower shortages in Ukraine where people aren't really eager to serve. I think that what may happen with an MOD affiliated group is that people may join up thinking they're going to go to Mali, which is, you know, relatively low intensity conflict, and then find somebody saying, well, you know, this is an MOD element. You're going to go to Ukraine. You know, they're having a hard time getting manpower power force. So there is a potential problem with this. But again, the primary concern from driving Russia, I believe, is their desire to have a force that is more deployable than regular Russian military and has a high level of capability, as Wagner Group did, but without the independence of Wagner Group. Russia had clear economic and strategic motives for its involvement in Africa, such as securing mineral resources, expanding its influence, undermining Western interests, and promoting authoritarian How could the U.S. help African countries who see Russian military involvement as a threat to peace and security in the continent? Yeah, this is a good question. So the countries that Wagner Group is operating in are either failed states or they're states that have undergone coups. They're basically dictatorships. So it's really hard to see how the United States and other uh, like-minded partners and allies are going to be able to engage. For example, in Mali, you know, you had a significant U.N. and French-run assistance mission for years that was trying to operate, you know, a counterinsurgency against Islamist guerrillas. When the Wagner Group goes in after the expulsion of the French and UN forces, what we've seen are basically massacres of um, uh, different tribes. I don't know how it's a real challenge because I don't think that there is both the will or the capability to engage in these regimes, which are, they're extremely questionable. And uh, their commitment to the goals that Western countries have, you know, in terms of good governance, those are not quite there. It seems like they're trying to win the insurgency by killing their way out of it. And that very rarely happens successfully. That was David Derouge, associate professor at the National Defense University, speaking to VOA senior analyst Mohammed Ashanawi. President Joe Biden and former President Donald Trump seem on track for a rematch in November's presidential election. But questions about Trump's legal difficulties and both candidates' ages lurk in the background. White House Bureau Chief Patsy Widakuswara looks at what could happen should one of them be forced to drop out. Former President Donald Trump faces 91 felony charges with at least one criminal trial expected this year. Health issues could impact President Joe Biden, who is 81. Headline, Biden's advanced age is a big issue. Trump's, however, is not. 
Or Trump, for that matter, who is 77. The big night is going to be in November when we take back our country. But what happens should one of them die or become incapacitated before the November election? If it happens before their party conventions, some states may extend primary dates to allow more candidates into the race. The winner of the primaries is officially announced as the party's presidential nominee at each party's convention. Republicans will hold theirs in July and Democrats in August. If a front-runner drops out and no candidate reaches a majority, delegates can essentially nominate someone else. John C. Fortier, research fellow focusing on elections and continuity of government at the American Enterprise Institute via Skype. There'll be a lot of freedom for those delegates to negotiate, pick someone, maybe pick someone else who wasn't running. That, that has happened in our history. But it will be up to the convention to decide who the nominee is for the Republican or, or the Democratic Party. Should the nominee drop out after the convention, the parties would reconvene delegates to select a replacement, and it's not guaranteed that it will be the vice presidential candidate. After the election, it's a similar process. Even if, let's say, Biden wins and cannot serve, his vice president, Kamala Harris, would not automatically be the replacement and electors vote again. But what happens if electors can't agree? Michael Thorning, director of structural democracy at the Bipartisan Policy Center via Skype. At that point, um, the election would go to the House of Representatives um, if no candidate can attain a majority. And so the election really ends up in something that we have not confronted uh, for hundreds of years. If the president-elect dies after Congress certifies the election result on January 6, the vice president-elect would be inaugurated as president. Any of these scenarios could become an extremely messy process that drags on in the courts, especially if the result is contested. And as the country has witnessed in the siege of the U.S. Capitol by Trump supporters on January 6, 2021, it could again turn bloody. Patsy Widakuswara, Viewing News, Washington. You're listening to South Sudan in Focus on the Voice of America. Coming up, the U.S. military carried out another attack against missile launch sites inside Houthi-controlled areas. Find out why. Hey, folks, I'm Luck Bill Yabarro, and I have some electrifying news for you. AFCON 2023 is here, and I'll be at Ivory Coast covering all things AFCON for VOA Africa. We'll have exciting coverage on radio, TV, and all of our digital platforms. Make sure you check out voaafrica.com for AFCON updates. Stay locked right here on VOA Africa. You're listening to South Sudan in Focus on The Voice of America. The U.S. military carried out another attack against missile launch sites inside Houthi-controlled areas of Yemen after a Houthi attack late Wednesday that damaged a U.S.-owned commercial ship sailing in the Gulf of Aden. The attacks came as the United States redesignated Yemen's Iranian-backed Houthi rebels as a global terrorist organization following weeks of missile and drone attacks on international shipping in the Red Sea and the Gulf. But as VOA Pentagon correspondent Carla Bab reports, critics remain concerned about Iran's increasing aggression in the region. 
The U.S. on Wednesday called Houthi militants a terror group after about 30 attacks on international shipping lanes since mid-November. National Security Council Director of Strategic Communications John Kirby. If the Houthis cease the attacks, we can certainly reconsider this designation. If not, the United States and Britain could launch more attacks against Houthi radar sites, launch sites, and drone and missile facilities inside Yemen. Pentagon Press Secretary Major General Pat Ryder. The Houthis need to ask themselves how much of their capability do they want degraded uh, and disrupted uh, in light of these illegal, reckless and dangerous attacks. It is exceptionally long overdue, and it's, it's still not even a complete restoration. Critics of the administration, like FDD's Behnem Ben Talablu, say more needs to be done against the Houthis, who serve as proxies for their military supplier, Iran. This is a neo-colonial project the Islamic Republic is engaging in to establish proxies and footholds across the Arab heartland of the Middle East to be able to have them fight the ideological adversary of the Islamic Republic, which is the Jewish state in the Middle East. Iran supplies illicit weapons to violent proxies across the Middle East in Gaza, Lebanon, Syria, Iraq and Yemen. This month, U.S. forces boarded a small boat off the coast of Somalia and confiscated several advanced conventional weapons bound for Yemen and made by Iran. Again, Foundation for Defense of Democracies, Talablu. Iran has this proxy strategy, which aims to put distance between it and threats and to create deniability. But with this newfound missile power, the regime is actually quite content in showcasing this itself. Tehran carried out deadly missile strikes inside Iraq and Pakistan this week, angering its neighbors. Islamabad recalled its Iranian ambassador as Iraqis in the northern Kurdish region launched massive protest. Karlabab, VOA News, the Pentagon. The health of the economy often plays a big role in how Americans vote in general elections, including for the next election. This year, there are early signs that other issues are equally important to people as they prepare to cast their ballots in November. VOA's Veronica Baldras Iglesias has the report from Washington. President Joe Biden kicked off 2024 on the campaign trail in Pennsylvania, where he reminded Americans of the gains he says the U.S. economy has made under his leadership. You look at the consumer confidence measures, they're way up. Look at across the board. Everybody's doing better and they believe it. They know it. There's no question that the U.S. economy has defied expectations by rebounding from the COVID-19 pandemic and remaining strong, says Assistant Professor of Economics at the George Washington University, Stephen Hamilton. Inflation is, is you know, down to sort of 3.1%, which, you know, is less than half of what it was at its peak. Uh, meanwhile, uh, Unemployment has remained near sort of 50-year lows at 3.7%. So that's a that's a real uh, uh, achievement. But whether the progress made so far will help get Biden re-elected in November remains to be seen. Hamilton noted. I think the big question leading into the election is how quickly will wages, wages rise and how quickly will inflation fall? And basically, will people start to feel the benefits um, before that date. 76% of U.S. adults see the economy as a top priority in 2024, according to a poll conducted last month by the Associated Press NORC Center for Public Affairs Research. Tim Carter tends to vote Republican. 
This year, his main concern is immigration, but he's also critical of Biden's economic policies. I don't think he's done as good as he says he has. And, uh, you know, as for the average American that's trying to make paychecks meet end to end, it's, it's not. The inflation's way higher, and so your actual earnings have gone down. Other voters interviewed in Washington's Adams Morgan neighborhood said abortion and foreign policy, rather than the economy, will determine how they will vote in November's general election. Texas resident Joshua Kane. To me, the, the social issues are the biggest uh, factor, mainly Roe v. Wade. I, I like uh, Nikki Haley's stance on it about, you know, hey, let's be realistic about it. We're not going to get a nationwide abortion ban. Ukrainian small business co-owner Anastasia Darun says her husband pays close attention to politicians' stances on international affairs, especially the ongoing war in her home country. He understands that the Democratic Party helps Ukraine more and willing to help more. Uh, and we, we are sure there is a lot of Republicans who want to help too. Um, but so far we see that some deals are cutting off and uh, we do not we do not know what to expect. Although the economy is not the main reason why Elsa Abraham says she will vote for Biden, she praises the president's handling of the issue. I think that the economy is only getting stronger. I think the interest rates will drop this year. I'm looking forward to that. But economists caution that it is still uncertain if the Federal Reserve inflation target of 2% will be met or whether interest rates will need to be raised again ahead of the November election. Veronica Valeras Iglesias, VOA News, Washington. Having won the Africa Cup of Nations back in 2012, Zambia is now hoping to reclaim its African Championship title. Muka Sibuku has more from Lusaka, Zambia. The Chipolo Polo, Zambia's national soccer team with its 30-man squad, under the watchful eye of coach Avram Grant. While back home, spirits are high as fans prepare to cheer on their team. We are so confident as a fan that this trophy is definitely coming home. Zambia is back at the Africa Cup of Nation. Africa, watch out. We are expecting the best then. Some fans say the use of different platforms during the tournament to root for the Chipolo Polo will help boost the team's morale. Let's make it memorable. Let's utilize social media to encourage the boys. And let's utilize whatever challenge path to whatever challenge have to get uh, to reach them and encourage them. The Zambia national team has faced numerous challenges over the years. The most significant loss was in 1993 when the then team members perished in a plane crash off the coast of Gabon after a refueling stop. 30 people on board a chartered Zambian Air Force flight, including 18 players of the national team, were killed. Today, Zambia soccer team members see the tournament as an opportunity to reclaim their spot at the top. Ruben Kamanga, the general secretary of the Football Association of Zambia, says although the Zambian team missed out on winning in the past, they now look ready for the challenge. Well, I think that uh, for us it's um, exciting times uh, because after missing out on uh, the last uh, few editions, Zambia is back and uh, it's back, I believe, with a bang. And in this particular appearance. I think the guys look very, very strong. That gives you the confidence that uh, 
they are not intimidated. And soccer analyst Eric Kasomo says he is hopeful the team will bring pride to the nation. Uh, if you ask me how ready they are, they look buoyant, they look, uh, they look good uh, in, in the pictures and the videos that we are receiving uh, from their training base. They look like uh, they are ready for the, uh, for the show pieces. So probably uh, the Copa Bullets, Polo Polo Boys as you call them, they will be in the tournament with their most favoured formation of a 4-3-3 formation and uh, I would uh, rate their preparedness as uh, above average. <laughs> The Zambia team was drawn at the preliminary group stage, which will see it face other groups from the Democratic Republic of Congo, Morocco and Tanzania. The Chipolo Polo team will be among 24 participants joining the 2024 Africa Cup of Nations, or AFCON, which began on the 13th of January and will continue until the 11th of February in Ivory Coast. Mokasibuku, VOA News, Lusaka, Zambia. When enjoying a fine perfume, a person might not be aware that one of its ingredients comes from the remote Comoros Islands in the Indian Ocean. It is ilanglang oil, and the, and the people who produce flower oil are asking for a larger share of the profits, as Ruth Elmendorp reports from the Comoros capital, Moroni. The Comoros Islands are home to fine fragrances, but the most valuable of these is the rare Ilang, Ilang oil, which is used in major perfume brands. Mahmoud Aboud is one of the many perfume distillers in the region. The 64-year-old businessman says Ilang Ilang flower oil used to be a lucrative commodity. Since COVID, the production has gone very low because of COVID and other major reasons, depending on the international market. Comoros' ailing economy is heavily reliant on fisheries and bananas, while its tourist potential remains untapped. People in the Comoros are hoping President Azali Azumani, who was re-elected this week, will do more to grow the economy. Mariama Ali Abduku is a 47-year-old mother of five. She just has voted. She says she wants better education and improvement of the economy. And she expects the new president to do this. To boost their and the country's fortunes, Ilang Ilang distillers like Mahmoud Aboud suggest a better positioning of their oil on the international market. When you plant it in the Comoros, it's very special because you get an oil that you cannot get it anywhere in the world. Like you get five qualities of the oil, but the super extra and the extra which is used in high-end perfume, you only get it in the Comoros. The World Bank says the oil producers pump 20 million US dollars into the Comoros economy. But perfume brands like Chanel and others make a much larger profit from the oil. Mahmoud Abot is adding more value to his oil by upgrading it into a perfume that is sold in Dubai, thereby making his flowers and distillation worth more. If you make the perfume and the people will understand that this is a product which is coming from the Comoros, Main, many people will come and buy directly from us instead of buying from the trader somewhere in, in France. The Comoros Ilang Ilang oil distillers hope they can use the hidden value of their work to bring a sophisticated touch and a fresh-smelling future to the remote island group. Ruth Almendorp for VOA News, Moroni, Comoros. 
And that's all we prepared for you this Tuesday, this Thursday, rather, January 18th, 2024. Don't forget to check out voaafrica.com for all your favorite programs and news updates. If you missed this broadcast, go to www.voaafrica.com forward slash South Sudan. We now leave you with the song Naoki Sango by Mbilia Bell. We've been listening to Mbilia Bell and the song Naoki Sango. I'm your host, Nabil Biagio in Washington. On behalf of our producer, Kwame Foreign Engineer Bill Andrade, thanks for taking the time to be with us. Remember to join us again tomorrow for another edition of South Sudan in Focus from the Voice of America.